Welcome to the Health Trip Podcast. My name is Jill Foos. I'm a functional medicine and integrative nutrition health coach. I created this podcast to bring you along as we travel down intriguing science-packed roads, debunking old medical paradigms and perusing new innovative therapies and modalities with the finest functional medicine doctors, practitioners, and like-minded biohackers while living our best life. Enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Health Trip Podcast. PCOS, or polycystic ovarian syndrome, is one of the most common causes of female infertility, affecting 6 to 12% of U.S. women of reproductive age. There's no known cause for PCOS, but several mechanisms have been linked to the syndrome, such as hormonal imbalance, insulin resistance, and genetics. Women with PCOS can develop serious health issues, especially if they are overweight. And most people I work with who have PCOS are in their childbearing years. I'm going to present to you a different conversation today with a repeat guest I've invited back onto the show. Today, we are going to focus on PCOS and menopausal women, a topic not covered enough in my opinion. PCOS never goes away. Once you're properly diagnosed, it's yours to keep for your life. Menopause is challenging enough and adding PCOS to the equation of menopause is even more challenging for women. Dr. Sean Tassone is America's holistic gynecologist. He is the first physician in the United States to be double board certified in obstetrics and gynecology by the American Board of Integrative Medicine. He holds a medical degree in addition to a PhD in mind-body medicine. He is a practicing OBGYN in Austin, Texas, a hormone specialist, author, speaker, highly rated patient advocate, and creator of the world's first integrative um, hormonal mapping system. In his 20 plus years of practice, he has seen over 40,000 women and he is determined to remove the myths surrounding women's health. He's also written a book called the Hormone Balance Bible. Little podcast disclaimer before we start by listening to this podcast, you agree not to use this podcast as medical advice or to make any lifestyle changes to treat any medical condition in yourself or others. Consult with your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. And this entire disclaimer also applies to any of my guests on my podcast. So sit back, relax, open your mind and enjoy the conversation with Dr. Tussone. Hi, Dr. Tussone. Welcome back to the Health Trip Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to have this conversation with you today. I work with so many women, mostly midlife women, but I do sometimes have younger women come to me and who know that they've been diagnosed with PCOS. But today I wanted to talk about PCOS and the menopausal woman because there have been instances in my practice where women don't know that they have it and they've been misdiagnosed and have had all sorts of health issues throughout their entire life. So I really wanted to focus on the midlife woman and PCOS. Okay, let's do it. So before we dive in, let's just talk about what PCOS is, polycystic ovarian syndrome. And if you could just share um, a little background on what that means. So by the using the word syndrome, what it connotates is that it isn't just one thing. Okay, so there isn't just one diagnostic criteria. It's a whole bevy of things that kind of conglomerate into this one thing. The one thing I'd like to put out from the very beginning is there's a lot of women that are diagnosed with it that don't have it. And there's a lot of women mm. that, that, that have it that aren't diagnosed with it. So it's really a poorly misunderstood 
thing, not just amongst women, but amongst practitioners. And the reason that I say that is because a woman can go into a doctor's office and just say, oh, I've gained some weight and I haven't had a period for six months. And they'll just tell her she has polycystic ovarian syndrome. Well, that's not a way to diagnose it. And um, and so that's what I mean when I say women are diagnosed with it that don't maybe even have it. And then there's women that have every criteria known to man and they're just told that, you know, they don't know what's going on or they need to eat less or whatever. Um, so basically the Rotterdam criteria that came out um, years ago says that if you have no periods, if you have weight gain, and if you have elevated testosterone, hirsutism, meaning hair growth in places where you don't want it, then you can diagnose polycystic ovarian syndrome. I think it's a little more complex than that. And actually, we're awaiting an update on that criteria. We haven't had an update uh, in years. And there's the committee that meets with that system is actually trying to update their diagnostic criteria. So everybody's kind of waiting on pins and needles to see that. But let's just suffice it to say in a nutshell, polycystic ovarian syndrome is absence of menses. Um, so you're anovulatory, meaning you're not ovulating. Um, in many cases, and this is not everybody that keep in mind, this is not a 100%. This is, if I was looking at 100 women with PCOS, this would be a, what a majority of them have. Mm -hmm. um, amenorrhea and ovulation, hirsutism or hair growth in unwanted areas. Um, now, just because you have a couple of hair chins doesn't, or chin hairs doesn't mean that you have PCOS, but because that can be genetic. But um, that's one thing, weight gain. And and usually the, the history is, you know, 10 pounds, 20 pounds, just kind of sneaks up on you over the years. If you look at pictures of these women, they were thinner in their high school photos. And over, you know, 10 years or so, they, they probably added 30, 40 pounds, just kind of, some women went a little bit faster. On ultrasound, you can see what we call a string of pearls finding where there will be a bunch of small cysts around the outside of the ovary. And the reason that we see that is because you're, your ovary will recruit 15 to 20 follicles every month to ovulate. And usually one of them will become dominant and suppress all the other ones and ovulate. Well, in P PCOS, it doesn't ovulate. So you just keep those little tiny cysts. Um, some women will have other kind of strange criteria. They might have insulin resistance. Um, that's another one, but that's not technically in the diagnostic criteria. Uh, the big ones are amenorrhea, weight gain, and uh, uh, hair growth, and then... Um, uh, I elevated testosterone. Right. So I remember when I was researching for this podcast, um, there was always three criteria and you had to have at least two of the three of the criteria. So does and that so still stand? A lot of women. Yeah. And a lot of women, um, I, if, if you were to probably have 20 patients in my office, most of them would probably have two criteria. So it's, mm -hmm. it's kind of like the other thing is, uh, lab value wise, besides maybe elevated glucose, high insulin, would be this um, these two hormones called the FSH and LH that are pituitary hormones that tell your ovaries what to do. And in a normal functioning hypothalamic pituitary axis, we usually <laughs> will see that FSH to LH ratio at about two to one. In women that have polycystic ovarian syndrome that aren't ovulating, meaning because you can have this uh, elevated LH uh, if you are ovulating for a day or two, but if you're not ovulating and your LH to FSH ratio is three to one, so it's flipped from two to one and it's flipped LH to FSH three to one, that can also be indicative of uh, polycystic ovarian syndrome. And that's why you have elevated testosterone because your LH number being high 
LH stimulates a cell in the ovary called a theca cell and theca cells make testosterone. So when your LH is constantly elevated, you're stimulating that ovary to make more testosterone. Oh, that's really interesting. So now, excuse me, now when we're talking about a menopausal woman, so a woman who has had no cycle for 12 months and a day, and let's say she's been struggling with some of the other criteria, how then do you approach properly diagnosing PCOS in that woman? I pretty much do a lot of, you know, so a lot of history, um, asking about the weight gain trend, asking about the hair growth, asking about her, her cycles. Um, and then I will usually order labs. Um, I don't usually order an ultrasound unless I'm really, you know, needing more data. Um, I think it's, you know, you don't necessarily need that aspect of it and it adds money to the, to the, to it for some women and, and you may not need it. So it looks like, you know, weight gain, no periods, um, uh, hair growth, they might have uh, elevated uh, estrogen, low or elevated estrogen, elevated testosterone, low progesterone, because they're not ovulating. Um, they could have uh, that FSH to LH switch. And usually it's fairly, you, you'll see it kind of in that sense where you have a woman that comes into you and she said she's had this for years. Um, she's gained 30 pounds. Her primary care docs don't know what to do. They put, she's been on like birth control pills since she was 16 and now she's 28 or whatever. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a pretty common picture that we see. Um, but I would say most docs that make this diagnosis are probably primary care docs because they're frontliners. You know, we, we tend to see a lot of frontline patients too, because we're considered primary care by some insurance companies. But for the most part, this is really a diagnosis made at the front lines. And so what I always challenge patients to do, if you did get diagnosed with PCOS, go see somebody that actually knows the disease fairly well, rather than just taking it that that's exactly what you have. Because like I said, some people are diagnosed that don't maybe have it. And, and other women that you think, gosh, I really think I have this. And you're told, nah, you can't have it for whatever reason. You really want to find out if you do have it because there's things you can do about it. Yeah. I mean, one, some of the things you're describing just sound like regular menopause to me. Sure. The, amenorrhea for sure. Um, weight the gain. weight gain, yeah. right. Uh, Getting dark hairs, places you don't want them. Yeah. And that's usually age and genetics, but yeah, so they, there, there is some overlap. And the question is if polycystic ovarian syndrome, and this is debated, um, is a disease of younger women up through menopause, does it continue into menopause? Because mm -hmm. theoretically, if the ovaries are shutting down at menopause, mm -hmm. um, your testosterone levels are going to drop your FSH LH numbers will both be then elevated, but the ovaries aren't responding. Um, do you have the insulin? Does the insulin resistance continue? So right now it's kind of debated whether or not PCOS continues into menopause or not. I don't think that there's a great answer. I think that it makes sense that it, the insulin resistance part of it at least could shift into menopause. Um, the testosterone part does tend to kind of decrease a little bit. But it's one of those things where it makes sense that why all of a sudden would it stop? But if it continues, then we're then I think we're doing a really bad job of taking care of those women because they're you know they're then these women instead of birth control pills are just being put on hormone replacement and they're not really addressing the other issues. 
Yeah. Speaking of hormone replacement. So do you, um, do you look at a menopausal woman that, you know, has PCOS differently in terms of prescribing hormones versus a woman who doesn't have PCOS? No, I mean, I don't, I would prescribe the same hormones unless obviously they, you know, the only thing that might differ a little bit might be the testosterone aspect if they didn't need it. But what you tend to see, you, and you see this in menopause anyways, where what most women will get that 10 to 15 pound weight gains, usually around the middle, really yeah. hard to get it off. Um, so it's really hard sometimes to differentiate if it's PCOS. And it might just be that PCOS is just a spectrum. It's not something that um, we used to think of it as a switch, like it's a switch that just flips on. Um, I used to tell women this all the time back in the day where it was just like, we don't know what the weight is, but there's a weight switch for a lot of women. You know, if you're under for some, like, let's say it's 150. And if you're under 150, you can keep the weight off fairly easy and you can, you know, eat what you want. But then if you go over 150, it's like all of a sudden it just flips and then you pack on 20 pounds. And no matter what you do, you can't get that weight off. That's the part where I think we really don't have a good idea as to what causes it yet. Like we don't know why it happens as part of the problem. A lot of the research I've read really point towards insulin resistance as being one of the mm -hmm. main drivers in sure. PCOS. Um, so I do want to talk about insulin resistance because that's just a, a huge topic. But I have a quick question. Is sure. PCOS genetic? I think there's a component for sure. Um, I think if you look at, uh, we haven't identified it for sure, but I do think that it's something that you could look at families. And if you look at, I just had a, a, a woman and her daughter in here the other day, and uh, they they both they they both have it, and um, they both mm -hmm. have that look. And you can, you know, be in a parking lot somewhere and see these families where it looks like, you know, there's, there's obesity and, and people would always say, well, Oh, look at them. You know, it's just the way they eat. They don't eat right or whatever. And that's a judgment, you know, obviously our society shuns that type of body shape and whatnot, but the reality is there's probably also a genetic component going on there because a lot of these women that have PCOS actually don't eat badly. They eat pretty well because they're really trying to lose right. the weight trying to be healthy. They don't want to be that. They were a better weight years ago and mm -hmm. it just sort of happened. And I think that they, and the woman brought her daughter in because it was kind of sad, but she, she, she was kind of crying because she feels like she felt like it was her fault. Like, yeah, I'm not feeding my daughter. Well, am I not, is there something I'm not doing? And it's like, no, I mean, I'm sure, you know, if you're conscious of it and you're crying about it, you're obviously feeding her well, right. You're not you're not, you're, you're already consciously aware of it. And she's feels like she's doing everything she can. And this girl's in high school and she's getting made fun of sometimes. And it's like, it just, it's, it's horrible. And the, all the doctors are doing is putting this young girl on birth control. And you're taking a woman that's in an already estrogen dominant state and you're giving her a birth control pill, which is estrogen really, for the most part is a little progestin in there, but um, and it's really doesn't make sense to me. So it's trying to break through that. So long answer, but yeah, I do think there's a genetic component for sure. So using that young high school girl as an example, what approach would you take if you're not going to put her on birth control? What is the approach? Well, there's a lot of different things. I kind of look at it like one, you know, 
you have to obviously address nutrition and you have to address exercise though. And that's pretty much true for everybody. It doesn't, not just yeah. PCOS, but I think in PCOS patients even more so. And because you may have, and it's not everybody, probably 25% of patients with PCOS don't have problems with being overweight and maybe don't have insulin resistance to a certain degree. They might have a little, um, and they're, they're, they're a normal body weight. Um, but in those that in most patients, you probably want to get them on a diet that is low in carbohydrates, processed carbs. You know, I always say, get your carbs from vegetables and some, some fruits, you know, um, eat lots of protein, uh, move your body more. And I don't think you need to do high intensity interval training. You can walk, you know, just moving is better than nothing. Um, then I'll also come at it. I'll, I will use in some women, some medications, uh, it depends, but um, metformin has been used for decades. Um, it sensitizes the body more to insulin. It lowers blood sugar levels. Uh, metformin has a lot of data coming out showing that it's actually a, a good anti-aging drug with anti-cancer properties. Um, it does have some side effects. It's got some GI issues and diarrhea and stomach pain. Um, there are supplements that I use, uh, inositol. Um, berberine, these can help, uh, help blood sugar levels as well. I have been actually using, uh, a medication called low dose naltrexone mm. in, a, in a lot of these women, because I, I feel as though there's a lot of inflammation, um, with PCOS and low dose naltrexone increases the body's ability to make more of its own natural endorphins. And those endorphins go around and help with um, inflammation. I'll also use holy basil, rosemary, turmeric, things like that to really help with inflammation as well. And then, you know, also trying to work on mindsets. I, I will have these women, you know, work with health coaches and stuff to, you know, give them just support because I think that's part of it is you, when you get labeled with something, when you get this label of polycystic ovarian syndrome, the first thing you're going to do is go Google and there's all this mm -hmm. information. There's good information. There's bad information. I think a lot of these women feel like, well, screw it. I don't know what I'm going to do. It's trying to take a drink of water out of a fire hydrant with all this information and people don't know what to do with it. So I think getting a coach, so I come at it with not just hormones, but uh, uh, spiritual practices or coaching. Um, uh, I, I will often recommend things like acupuncture and um, you know self-care, massage, things like that. Yeah. Um, essential oils. I mean, I'll try anything for these ladies, but, yeah. but really the, the crux nutrition exercise, proper supplementation, and then mindset. So as long as we're on the lifestyle intervention component of this podcast, um, let's just keep diving in. In terms of diet, you mentioned low carb. What about the carnivore diet? I was a carnivore for almost two years and I felt great. I don't have PCOS, so I did it for different reasons. But what are your thoughts on using the carnivore diet as a tool in the toolbox just to start um, changing over? mindset about eating more protein, focusing on healthy fats, and just sort of making a, using it as a transition component, not lifelong, but just a short term. Well, I think the carnivore diet is obviously, it's, uh, it's one of those things that um, is obviously debated. And, you know, I'm not opposed to vegetables. And, you know, uh, I do kind of believe that vegetables are good for you. I have a good friend of mine who maybe you've interviewed him, Dr. Joel Kahn, who's a 
a vegan and he's a cardiologist and Joel's very adamant, obviously about vegetables and beans and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And then you got Paul Saladino, mm -hmm. who's, you know, carnivore MD and, and, and who, who do you, I don't, I'm a physician. I don't even know anymore what to do, right. but I kind of have to believe that I believe an omnivore diet is probably the best with, you know, a good balance. Um, I would say, you know, limiting the processed carbs because we don't need those. Right. Um, and I just saw a story today that Paul Saladino was putting out about how the the Bushmen in Tanzania, the the men don't eat anything really but meat, um, unless that's all they have are legumes or something. And I and I responded to him and I was like, Yeah, but they their lifespan is 60. You know, it's like right. so it's it's and it may just be their living arrangements, but at the mm -hmm. same time, it's like we have vegetables, we have fruits, we have meats. I think eating them in moderation is probably the way I'm just a very, uh, even in my life and political views, I'm a very moderate type person. I, I'm not an extremist, although I have gone to extremes like you have and, and I've gone keto and I just found for me and for most of my patients, keto and carnivore, it's unsustainable. It's, yeah, it's I would hard. agree hard to eat that yep. way. I, I think organ meats are great. I personally don't like to eat them um, because I think they're disgusting. Um, you know, liver king <laughs> and all these guys out there eating raw liver. Uh, I don't doubt that it's good for you. I'll, I just would eat the desiccated liver capsules because I just can't eat the stuff, but I'll supplement. I probably take way too many supplements, but I have fun trying different supplements mm -hmm. and I enjoy that. But yeah, I think carnivore is, if you want to try it and you can do it, um, but I, and I also, I also think that these things are also genetically dependent. I think some people do better on carnivore and some people do better probably as vegetarian. I think vegan is, is, is an extreme thing as mm -hmm. well. So I don't necessarily endorse that. I don't judge people for doing it, but I don't think it's, I have a friend that's all she eats is raw food and I don't know how she does that, but, um, but that's another extreme. I, I just got to think that it's a good blend. Yeah, I would agree with you. I like to call it an animal-based diet. You know, I always try to help women prioritize eating protein because what I see, whether they have PCOS or not, is that they are drastically under eating protein, you know, below oh, yeah. 80, below 70, 80 grams of protein a day is just not enough, especially as an aging woman. And we're talking about that menopausal woman who is going to lean, lose lean muscle mass as she ages and gain body fat as she ages. And that brings me back to insulin resistance. So in a lot of the studies I looked at, insulin resistance was there's a theory that that's one of the main driving forces of PCOS. And I wanted to ask you your um, opinion on semaglutide, the ozempics, yep. the trisepatide, um, Wagovi, and how that plays a role for you as a physician in helping women um, reverse insulin resistance mm -hmm. and lose that weight. I did a podcast episode myself uh, a few weeks ago on it, on my podcast, and I, a good person to follow actually on um, Google or on uh, Instagram is uh, New York endocrinology, um, mm. uh, Rosia, Rocio Salas, I believe her name is. She's an endocrinologist. And that's all she talks about every day are the incretins. Those medications are called incretins, uh, semaglutide yeah. or Ozempic, uh, Manjara, <laughs> Wagovi, Victoza. Mm -hmm. um, I personally think, well, they've been around for a heck of a long time, like 40 years, I think. Um, but it wasn't until, and they've been using diabetics for 
decades and they've lost weight. The thing was recently, I think the problem, what happened, the reason that it got so negative so fast was because the celebrities got yeah. grabbed onto it and brought it to the forefront. And then everybody wanted to try it, obviously. And then we had shortages because, you know, too many people came in at once. I do believe they're pretty amazing medications. And I do think they're going to change the lives of millions and millions of people that have really had weight problems. I have seen in my practice, pretty average 15 to 20% body, uh, body weight loss. Now, some of that obviously is muscle, but, yeah. but, but uh, over six to 12 months, and it's pretty consistent. Um, the problem is about 85% of those patients will gain the weight back. And now that's, in my opinion, if they don't do anything else, um, I won't put a patient on those medications unless I have them in a program, some other program where they're making the mind shift challenges. They're working yeah. with health coaches. They're, they're learning elimination diets. They're exercising mm -hmm. because it, I kind of liken it to this semaglutide, Ozempic, those medications, it's like shoving a square peg through a round hole as hard as you, you get it in there and you're, you're, you're basically forcing your body to lose weight. Uh, those medications work in different ways. They, they make your insulin work better. So they sensitize you to insulin. They lower your glucose levels mm -hmm. and they increase your basal metabolic rate. So they, uh, they also slow down stomach transit. So you don't feel hungry. You feel full. So there's different ways that it works. And that's, what's amazing about it. So when you shove this, you're getting this square peg through this round hole and you're pushing really hard. And as soon as you let up the pressure, it just shoots back out the other direction. Yeah. Right. And that's the rebound, that weight gain. So what I think, what, what I think works best is a combination approach. And instead of just stair-stepping people up, like let's say with Manjaro, you go 2.55, 7.510, and then people have been stopped. Well, I stair step back down. So I'll go back down 7.55, 2.5. And I'll find that level where they start, if people start gaining the weight back, um, one month they gain five pounds or eight pounds or whatever, um, we might have the discussion. What they're finding is for some people that weight is, they may need to be on it long-term. And that's the other piece yeah. of this. Like you you might have to look at these medications as like hypertension medications. But what's funny in a way is everybody gets all bent out of shape about that. Oh, you're on this weight track. It's like you're cheating, blah, blah, blah. But okay, if I can put you on Ozempic and you lose 50 pounds and your cholesterol goes down and your blood pressure goes down and you can get off of those medications, you're not taking your statin, you're not on blood pressure meds anymore. I will gladly trade that for an Ozempic medication because- you might be able to over time keep the weight off if you can make the changes. We don't know. I don't think we really know yet though. Like maybe for some people, they can't ever go off the medications. And, and that's yeah. something that needs to be looked at. And I'm sure it is going to be looked at, but for some people, you know, maybe uh, you have to look at weight gain as kind of a, you know, chronic disease and, yeah. For some folks, they just can't ever be off those meds or they'll gain their weight back. But is that a bad thing? I mean, I don't think that we should judge. I think that that's a doctor-patient discussion. I think we're very distrustful of the medical and pharmacy system now for obvious reasons. 
And we always look at the money. Oh, look at the money they're making. It's a thousand dollars a month, but these medications change people's lives. I mean, I can't tell you how many women I've seen in the office that are just different people because of the weight they've lost. Yeah, but I thought you, I think you said a few really important things. One is that you don't want to put a, you won't put anyone on this until you know that they're working with someone and working on those lifestyle interventions, right? Knowing how to eat right for your body, knowing how to exercise, getting that sleep, the proper restorative sleep, and getting the um, stress management techniques in place. I think it's all really important. I'm actually on semaglutide. I've been on it for eight months. I don't have again, I don't have PCOS, but I do have high blood glucose. I only have half a thyroid. So I've been struggling for the last seven to 10 years with high blood glucose, high insulin. And, um, you know, that opens my, as a woman who's in menopause, it opens up myself to chronic disease if it continues mm -hmm. to go up. So what I have found on my journey with semaglutide is the first four months were absolute hell for me. Absolute hell. I'm someone who is very fit. I build a lot of lean muscle mass and coming from the carnivore diet, I eat a lot of meat and protein. So that was really difficult for me. And um, I lost weight. I don't really need to lose weight, but I did lose weight. And it took me about four to six months being on semaglutide and um, titrating down. So like you said, you have to go up, but then you have to titrate back down to see where, find that sweet spot. So I only have to use it once every three to four weeks on a half a dose. And that helps me maintain my blood glucose and my insulin levels, which I get checked every six weeks to make sure they're still in line. And I have been able to put more weight back on, which I needed to do because I did not feel good. And I'm back to my regular diet and I have the energy to continue my weight training routines, you know, four or five days a week. So I feel really good, but it took a really long time. And that's coming from someone who does all the things, who knows all the things. Yeah. And I think it's, like I said, I mean, the problem with society is we, we have like different factions and the people that are upset about these medications have probably never been overweight in their life. And they're just sitting on their phone and they're just trashing, you know, the industry because Kim Kardashian talked about it or whatever. And the, the point is that I always like to make is these medications actually change people's lives. I mean, they get off blood pressure meds, statins, they get off antidepressants, mm -hmm. they get, I mean, it's like crazy. The medic So if we're going to put them on Ozempic and they can get rid of three other medications, why isn't that a good thing if they feel better about themselves? But I feel it's pretty amazing. You, you admitted you take it because so many people don't want to tell people, you know, it's like, it's like this scarlet letter now, you know, and, um, and now you've got the plastic surgeons that are starting to talk about Ozempic face and making money off the fact that people are, losing a lot of weight. And when you lose a lot of weight, you tend to look a little different, you know? Um, and so it's, it's just American society, I guess, but I would tell anybody that's interested in it. Um, it's a great time. There's a lot of predatory websites out there that are doing these clubs where it's $99 a month and it sounds wonderful, but there's also people out there using compounded semaglutide that aren't telling you it's compounded and it's not it's not evil that they're doing it, but they should tell you because unfortunately right now there is no FDA approved semaglutide that is for made for compounding. Uh, the way these companies are getting around patents uh, because it's a patented drug is to add B12 or, or, exactly. NAD, or NAD. And right. the problem is there's no 
what it's not going to hurt you, but what I think will happen is it may not work because the, we don't, when you mix it, who knows if you didn't, you know, if it even is a medication anymore, we just don't know. And so like, there's a plastic surgeon here in town that's doing it and he calls it the skinny shot and he calls it (laughs) semaglutide, but technically it's not semaglutide because you're mixing it. And, and I believe it's Pfizer is the only company that has the patent and they're the only ones that sell the powder for the semaglutide. So where are they getting the powder from is, is a big question. So are you actually getting semaglutide is the question, or are you paying $250 or $300 for absolutely nothing? So buyer beware, do your research, ask questions and really look at those places. No, absolutely. You have to work with an, if, if you're a client of mine, you're working with a functional medicine MD or a physician, you are not getting it online. That would be a big no, no. Um, So you also mentioned some other lifestyle interventions, um, stress management and mind body. <laughs> How important is that to a woman who's in menopause who also has PCOS? You know, we get we have these really busy lives. Things are stressful coming out of COVID. Um, there's just always a lot of things going on. And how important is that? Well, mindset, I think, is the key to everything for the most part. I mean, uh, if you had a food pyramid shaped thing for weight loss or for life in general, I mean, weight loss for sure, I would put nutrition and exercise at the bottom as being the most important, but probably the third thing would be mindset. And I, I'm this way. I mean, I, I've often, I I tell patients all the time when I was in the military, right out of residency, I probably weighed 175. I was the best shape. You know, I was like 32 and I was running four miles a day and I was probably in the best shape I'd, I was ever in. And then I remember one day I was 190 and I was thinking, oh yeah, you're getting up there. You probably need to do something. Then I hit 200. I'd never been 200 in my life. And I remember thinking, shoot, I got to do something. And then I just hit one, 218. It was just like, what in the hell? It's like, I gained 43 pounds in like, you know, 20 years took me a while, but where did, and I, I didn't really notice, I didn't feel like I was morbidly obese, but I mean, I'm, you know, I was getting there, I guess. And so for me, the mindset part was, okay, then I felt disgusting. Then I felt lost. Then I felt, even as a physician, you know, I would yo-yoed most of my life. I tried fentiramine back in the day and all these things, but I never really found a dietary aspect that I could stick with. Like I just, Mm -hmm. I like to eat. I like hamburgers. I like pasta. I like, I like all the bad stuff, I guess. But what I found with um, the mindset was I don't have to not eat because it's the other thing I say, you know, alcoholism is similar to being overweight, but alcoholism, you don't have to drink alcohol. You know, that's not to live, but you got to eat. So people that struggle with food, like I did, you have to eat. So you're around the thing that causes you a problem all the time. And, and you have to, you have to eat it. And so it's like, how do you do that? For me, I found was the big thing was lunch. Okay. So lunch for me was the worst. If I left myself to my own devices, I would go out to eat for lunch every day. I would go out and grab something. If I prepped my food, then I would probably eat what I brought. And, mm-hmm. and I could control the portions and I could control the caloric density of it. So that was a thing that was a mind shift for me. And it was just kind of sitting back and looking at my life. So the mindset, the coaching, 
what I found with coaching, I decided that I needed to change the way that I spoke to myself. And so for me, it was neuro-linguistic programming. And I hired a couple of coaches here in Austin just to reteach the way that I speak to myself, Mm -hmm. criticize myself. And I also found there's a good book out there called Gap and Gain. And I was living in the gap, meaning I would, so I wrote a book and then I would look at the book and I would say, well, I only sold 5,000 copies. Um, Instead of saying, geez, I wrote a book and I sold 5,000 copies. Um, The gain is, is giving you accolades for what you've achieved in your Mm. life instead of looking at the gap and saying, what haven't I achieved yet? And that's Mm -hmm. how I lived my life. I never, I would always say to myself, you know, when is it going to be enough? When are you going to, you got an MD, you got a PhD, you got written, when is it going to be enough? Mm -hmm. And I didn't have an answer. And I felt like I was always trying to achieve that next thing. And so for me, that's, it was the same with food. It was just never enough. Like if I would always, as a kid, I would count the number of pieces in the pizza so I could make sure I got my share. You know, I wasn't, it, it was just kind of a mindset for me that I, I never had enough. And, um, and so that for me was pretty eye opening. And I wouldn't have had that had I not had the mindset part. I really like that because when women have PCOS, you know, there's the unwanted hair in places on their body, there's acne besides the weight gain. So they're just not feeling physically sexy about themselves, right? So I really love that mindset because if they're in if they're in the process of healing themselves and managing their PCOS symptoms, it takes time. It takes time to turn all this around and there's going to be ups and downs. So I love the whole mindset component. And that is one of the hardest parts of this journey to tackle for a lot of people. Yep. I agree. So let's, yeah. So let's talk about, um, supplements. And uh, you touched on a few, or you touched on a a handful of them uh, a few minutes ago, but I want to go back to them. So what is a typical PCOS toolbox of supplements look like? Or is it more personalized? uh, It's, it it can be personalized, but I would say there probably is a, a grouping of three or four that I would say probably would hit the mark for 90% of people. One would be um, uh, myo-inositol or dechiro-inositol. Inositol is a amino acid that is really good at helping you lower glucose levels. And in a lot of research studies, helps just as much sometimes as metformin. Um, And our body makes it. Yes, but not in probably a high enough quantity. Um, Mm -hmm. Or berberine. Berberine is another supplement that you could use. I would probably pick one of the two of those because there has been some research to show that people's glucose levels can go too low on those medications or on those supplements if you uh, take too much. So that those are a couple. I'm a big fan of maca. I talk about- Wait, I have one question about that before we go to maca. If someone is taking semaglutide, would you also put them on inositol and or berberine? Yeah, I have patients that are on um, ozempic semaglutide and I have them on metformin. So I'll use both um, because semaglutide actually doesn't make your glucose levels go too low. That's been shown over and over and over again. So it's not going to bring you say from uh, uh, an 80 on your fasting glucose down to 40. It doesn't do that. Um, you, it, so I'm not too, and I haven't seen that, and, but I did, I've actually spoke to 
New York endocrinology, uh, Dr. Salas, and, and she said the same, she told me that. And so, um, I, I don't mind prescribing those two together now, or using, I wouldn't use metformin and berberine and semaglutide, but I would use, and I don't do it in everybody. It's just semaglutide. I might add, uh, I'll probably would either, if they're on semaglutide, like you said, especially in the beginning, a lot of nausea, a lot of stomach pain, um, gastroesophageal reflux, um, no appetite, you know, and it can be pretty harsh. Uh, so I don't usually add metformin on those folks because metformin also has diarrhea and stomach pain as a side effect. So um, I might go to berberine or inositol that doesn't really have that as a big of an issue for those patients. Um, the other one is the maca. And I, I talk about maca a lot. I look at hormones as being the tile in the bathroom and the maca being the grout. Maca helps kind of fill in the gaps. Um, we don't know the exact mechanism of action, but it certainly can help with bringing hormones back into line. It can help with lower the test. It can help bring testosterone down, maybe help progesterone production, just supports the body. So I would probably recommend berberine or inositol, uh, maca. And then uh, I'm a big fan of uh, a product called Zyflamend. I don't have any financial stake in those folks. Um, the the uh, Zyflamend is a holy basil, rosemary, turmeric, anti-inflammatory. It's been studied extensively in rheumatoid patients and shows um, inflammatory markers go way down um, because I do believe that people that have extra fat cells obviously have more inflammation. And then I do like to use um, high doses of uh, omega-3s um, in these people. And I used to use a lot of fish oil, but I've recently switched for sustainability reasons to um, algae, um, just because it has a negative carbon footprint and it's completely reproducible. That doesn't, you know, fish, you got to worry about where it's harvested. And the main thing with fish is, is it rancid? Because uh, it sits in those capsules. And right. the algae, the, um, the company I like is Orlo. They're a great uh, company out of Iceland and they do a lot of good work, but it's blue. So it's got that antioxidant piece to it. Um, the, the, the gel caps, a lot of gel caps, people don't want to use, um, because they don't like the, and fish, they burp a lot. You don't burp with algae. So it's not the same kind of, you don't get that GI pep, that pep, mm -hmm, pepsia mm -hmm. that you'll get. Um, but those big four are probably what I would recommend. Um, and then it really depends on the person. And, you know, I don't, I kind of try to cut off at about a hundred bucks. So I don't like to try to give people like $700 of supplements. And when I do supplements too, I'm also kind of a purist. I don't like the only proprietary blend that I'll use is the Zyflamend because I kind of look at it like if I'm going to use a Nostal, I just want to use a Nostal or if right. I want to use magnesium, I don't use like a calm formula because it's got, you know, five things in it. And I don't know which one's working. So I just, I really kind of try to stay with the one ingredient. I think that just for mm -hmm. me works better. So that's kind of what I look for in supplements too. Yeah, that's, um, inositol is one that I use that I'm deficient in and I use it at night. And the other thing that it works great on is sleep. Yeah. And that's huge because if you're not sleeping and your cortisol levels are up, you're going to have higher sugar levels. Exactly. Let's talk about some of the more biohacking things um, people can do outside of supplementation and lifestyle interventions, like red light therapy, for example. Have you, do you know of any um, studies or research or information on using red light therapy, which optimizes our mitochondria in terms yeah. of uh, PCOS? 
I mean, there, there's some, you can look it up red. You can either type in red light therapy. The, the friend of mine that I always defer to, um, that is big red light guy is Ari Witten. Um, he wrote the, the book on it, I think on, um, on this, but basically it's called photobiomodulation. If you want to look that up, um, it has been shown to improve, so improve ovarian activity in patients with PCO or in rats with PCOS, not patients. Um, so the question is whether or not that translates over into humans. But what they found was that plasma levels of like progesterone um, and testosterone and sometimes thyroid were increased um, by red light therapy. And also what was interesting is that LH surge we talked about before was decreased. Yeah. So, um, and basically, you know, if you look at 20% possibly of women in the world have PCOS um, and red light therapy is still in a lot of cases expensive. Um, I'm not a huge fan of the, of the red light blankets. I think if you're going to buy red light therapy, there's a lot of good companies that the panels work really well, but they're, mm -hmm. you know, 600 bucks. They're not cheap. Um, I'm also a big fan of infrared saunas. Um, if you can get a good one, you know, you're talking probably thousands of dollars at that point, but, but it's also just good for you too. And I think part of the other issue too, is women that, and men that have more fat cells hold on to more toxins. And I hate the word toxins because like, but you're talking about those neuroendocrine disruptors, you know, pesticides, you know, things in makeup, things in underarm deodorants, you know, all these things that we put on our skin and our face and lipstick and blah, blah, blah stores in fat. And so it's just sitting there. And then on top of that, once you start losing the weight and those fat cells start lysing and they break down and release they're releasing all that garbage too. So right. um, you want to be on a good, so that's why some people will feel horrible when they start losing weight, I think is because you get that, all that mm -hmm. stuff that's being released from the fat cells. Yeah. I think you're um, just really bringing all of this full circle in terms of that. It is a lifestyle approach to PCOS in terms of mitigating symptoms and it all matters. And you can't just do one or two things, you know, to be all in and lifelong and find out what is that routine for you and what does that look like for you is really the way to go. Well, we're recording this in March and, and March is endometriosis awareness month. And, and besides PCOS or besides endo, PCOS is probably the most difficult thing that I deal with as a physician mm -hmm. um, because they are chronic. They're mentally or physically painful. Um, they physically affect a woman's lifestyle to where she doesn't have the life that she wants. There aren't simple answers. There isn't a magic pill, although I would say semaglutide is getting pretty damn close, although it's a shot, not a pill. Um, but if you have, I think the more that we talk about it, like we are, um, unfortunately, I would say modern medicine, my colleagues, the allopaths out there still prescribe birth control pills, knee jerk all the time. And I'll tell you why it's not because they're jerks. It's because they're busy and they have, they have 50 patients a day, some of them, cause they do OB and they can't sit down with somebody for 40 minutes and talk about all this stuff. And they may not know all this stuff because I, we had to go out and find out. I mean, it's, I've been doing this now for since 2005 and it's, you know, you're always learning stuff. Well, if they're too worried about 
five deliveries they got to do that day and 50 patients in the office and they're not going to have time to do it. So it's easy to put somebody on a birth control pill. It doesn't fix anything really, but you know, they'll have a period, although it's not really a period. So don't get frustrated with my colleagues. Try to see that I, and I always do this. They're trying to, they're doing the best they can. Mm -hmm. Um, They just don't know. And I think find somebody, find somebody like Jill, find somebody like me. And also it's not just one person, right? It's, there might be, you know, there's me, there's Jolene Brighton, there's Nicole Jardim, oh. Matt Kringus, mm-hmm. there's all these mm-hmm. people out there and we all have different things that we are good at. You know, I'm good with hormones and some supplements, you know, there's, there's naturopaths, there's Chinese medicine, there's you, there's yeah. coaching, all these things can work together, you know? Right. Um, so keep that in mind too. You don't just have to go into one person's program. As a matter of fact, I would say it's good to go into a bunch of different programs if you can afford it, because you're going to learn more. And the more you learn, the better you're going to get at this stuff. Absolutely. So speaking about the allopaths out there, um, in terms of testing for PCOS, mm-hmm. like blood tests, mm-hmm. is your approach looking different than an allopathic doctor's approach? And what what do you want to look for? I would say most allopathic doctors won't test uh, at all. Um, so I think they'll just go by history. And if you're not having a period and you gained weight, they'll just say a PCOS. Not mm. just GYN, not just primary care docs, but GYNs will do the same. I, I, I think most women's main struggle with hormones in general is getting their doctor to order tests um, in 100%. general. 100%. So you go in and say, you've read a lot about PCOS. Um, they're, they're not going to just order this battery of tests. I just had a lady come in today who said um, her doctor wouldn't order the test because they quote unquote said, I'll order the test, but I wouldn't know what to do with them. That's what they said. Um, well, at least they're being honest. Yeah. And that's true. They don't. And so, and, and that's the other thing they, if they don't tell you why, that's probably why it's like, what am I going to do with them? So you you should probably either, as much as I hate to say this, sometimes you got to order your own. Um, I don't like that because then you get all these test results and you don't know what to right. do with them. Right. But if you really want to, or find somebody, you know, like I'm licensed in 15 states, I can order stuff or most coaches can order uh, the, the Dutch test, but they might not be able to order insulin or glucose because that's a blood test. Um, right. But there's, there's definitely people out there um, that can help maybe order things like I'm starting to combine forces with like McCall McPherson at Modern Thyroid and a couple of other NPs because I can't reach everybody because I can't get I can't afford to get licensed in 50 states, you know. So I'm starting to to combine with other people. And I think that's what you're going to start seeing is this kind of melding of minds and and hopefully women can find it and they'll find it easily. I think Instagram is helping a lot to yeah. help that problem because women are finding people, you know? I would agree. But what test would you, oh, Okay. <laughs> what yeah. test would you recommend that a woman have, right. have done? I would say, uh, FSH, LH, estradiol, progesterone, um, free and total testosterone, sex hormone binding globulin. Those usually come as a package deal. DHEA, yeah. Vitamin, vitamin D, mm-hmm. um, a free, free T3, which is the active thyroid test, free T4, TSH, probably a thyroid peroxase antibody, which tests for um, Hashimoto's, uh, fasting insulin, 
and probably what's called a comprehensive metabolic profile, mm-hmm. which is a electrolyte panel, renal function, and liver enzyme test, as well as a glucose level. Yeah. So you're right. Uh, an allopathic doctor is definitely, I know that I have a lab, a very comprehensive lab list, and I try to educate my clients on using within their insurance policy, using their, their PCP and going in and having a well thought out, educated conversation. I get them prepared and hand over the blood list. And at the end of the day, the doctor must cross off 80% of the labs, which are the ones that you just listed off. Yeah. And the other thing is I always tell people too, it's like, I've had people ask all the time, how do I convince my doctor? Well, you don't, you don't convince them because you can't. Right. Right. Uh, so don't get frustrated. Just, you know, be polite. Thanks so much. I wish you would order this. You know, it's really unfortunate. I'm, and then you could even say to him, I, I, I guess I'm going to have to go find someone else, but you know, I, I really like you, but I'm going to have to go find someone else. Right. That's what's going to change people's minds. I think doctors that are losing patients because that's revenue, um, they start to kind of perk up a little bit. Like when I was in my old practice, when I joined, there were 10 docs when, before I went out on my own and they were totally opposed to bioidentical hormone, but I thought it was a voodoo and blah, blah, blah. Then what I noticed was a few years in, they'd walk down by my hall and they might ask me a question like, what would you do with this lady? You know, mm-hmm. what would you, would you give her progesterone? And, and would you give her Provera or would you do that Prometrium, that bioidentical stuff? And then, and then like they would ask me more. And now, now that I've left them, now they're all experts. It's hilarious. But that's how medicine evolves because yeah. the patients are demanding it and they had to learn it. So you can force them with your feet by walking out and going to see someone else. Yeah, they yeah. will eventually figure it out. It sucks because you got, but you still could use them for your annuals. And, you know, maybe you like them. They delivered three of your babies, but they don't do what you need. Right. I don't, I don't do hyperthyroidism. If I diagnose a patient with new onset hyperthyroidism, I send them to an endocrinologist. I'll order an ultrasound, but that's not my area of expertise. So mm-hmm. I don't mess with that. But but it's it's how it's how medicine should work. And I have a lot of docs now that refer to me for what I consider the uh, the patients they don't know what to do with. Like, mm-hmm. you know, oh I have this like they think they're doing probably they're doing the they're they're probably sending me this crazy person, but I actually can help them. Right. And and they can't. And so it it's working out actually. And then I'll send them a note back and I hope they're reading it because maybe they'll read it and they'll say, Oh God, he's using something called berberine. What the hell is that? You know, cause I put that in my note and they might, maybe they'll pick it up and they'll read it and they'll go, okay, I'll start looking at this and maybe right. they'll start recommending it. Right. I mean, we're talking about women entering menopause and it's really opening themselves up to the final third of their life. And there's yeah. no reason now with what we know and what we have at our, um, at our fingertips to use that we should feel like crap right? We should feel great. We should want to, you know, go out and be with our partner. That's a a whole nother (laughs) ball of wax talking about the fear of estrogen with providers, uh, doctors even are afraid of it. I mean, we, we treat, well, it's no secret, the misogyny and it's not men doctors, it's all doctors, the the misogynistic view that, and it's funny because most of these docs that don't prescribe estrogen either don't know what it feels like because they're men or they're younger women and they have no idea because they're not there yet. And then magically when they get there, they're like, holy cow, I need some estrogen. Well, the first um, podcast I had you on with me, we talked about hormone replacement therapy and broke it all down. So people can go back and listen to that. 
And I have a podcast where I just break down the Women's Health Initiative, which is probably the most damaging piece of yes. literature that's ever been published for, uh, against women. Horrible study, but it's actually interesting to break it down because it's it's funny to see how horrible it is. But I'll tell you, you talk. I talk to women all the time. I'll prescribe estrogen. They'll come back to see me four weeks later and they will say, oh, I didn't start it because I had three friends tell me it was going to give me breast cancer. And it's just, it's rampant yeah. and, and it's, and I don't want to, you know, it's like, you know, anything else, I don't want to convince them. I just want right. them to feel safe with my knowledge. I wouldn't give it to them if I thought it was going to hurt them, but, of course not. but, you know, we have this feeling in our society and this goes with PCOS endometriosis. I just did surgery today on a 16 year old who had stage three endo, who is basically contemplating suicide because she's in daily pain. That's horrifying. And she's seen six doctors and nobody would help her. She drove to see me from North Carolina because nobody wow. will help this girl. And she had horrible endometriosis that I was able to remove. And hopefully, and going forward, I'm going to work with her on inflammation and, and hormones. And it's like, why, why do we do this to women? I don't know if a guy came in and had that level of pain. Oh my God, it would be the end of the world. You know? Absolutely. What is yeah. it? Uh, who's the, who's the, 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 the news lady um, uh, that they did the movie on um, uh, that uh, the whistleblower that does, she does all the interviews. Oh God, I can't remember her name. They did a, um, uh, Julia Roberts played her in. The oh, movie. right. Oh, with the water, the tainted yeah, water. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyways, she made a really great quote one day and she said, if, 10,000 penises fell off in one day, it would be a national crisis, but women suffer all the time and nothing ever happens, you know? Absolutely. So. so before we end the podcast, what are three things a woman can do if she suspects she has PCOS or she has PCOS, she's in midlife, what are three things right now she can do at home to just start on her journey to turn that around? That's a good question. Um, well, one, I would gear up to be an advocate for yourself. Um, you might get lucky and you might find somebody like you or me right off the bat, mm -hmm. but take those labs down that we just talked about. Those are the labs you should get. Um, if you can't find somebody to order them, then order them yourselves, uh, yourself. Um, look online. There, if you type in PCOS on Instagram, you're going to find a ton of coaches. Start educating yourself. Um, follow somebody like you follow all these other people out there that are talking about it. Not just, I might talk about it during uh, PCOS awareness month, but I can't talk about it every day. Cause I got all these other things I talk about, but there are people online that talk about it every day, educate yourself and then start looking at, if you're suspicious of it, worst case scenario, if you started something like an Ocetol or Berberine, you wouldn't get any results. Best case results, you might start losing a little weight. You might feel a little bit better um, and really focus on your sleep. Um, I know you hear that now over and over again, but like you said, um, you're sleeping better with the Nostal. If you're not sleeping well, you're, you're, you're making PCOS even worse because your, your glucose levels are, are up. So yeah. one, advocate, two, educate, three, start, don't, don't fall into the mindset of being defeated. Yes, you might have gained some weight. Yes, you might feel lost, but I can't tell you how many women find me and that I'm able to help. And there is hope. So don't lose hope. Oh, I love that. And so tell everyone where they can find you and tell them about your book and okay. the name of your podcast as well. I'm on obviously Instagram, Sean Tassone, MD. 
Um, I'm on Facebook, but who uses Facebook anymore? Um, I do. I know uh, old people do. Right. Well, 40 plus. 40, 40 exactly. plus. Yeah, my kids are all on Snapchat. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I'm on TikTok. But really, um, my book is called The Hormone Balance Bible. It was published by HarperCollins in uh, 2021. Uh, it doesn't talk specifically about PCOS, but it talks about all the different hormones and the hormone imbalances that mm -hmm. come along with that. Uh, my podcast is called Confessions of a Male Gynecologist, which um, this week, actually today, the endometriosis episode dropped, but I do have one on PCOS that was about two months ago. That's all about PCOS and right. um, different topics all the time, different health concerns. And the reason I say confessions is because I like the guests that come on every other week to confess how they were malaligned by the medical system mm -hmm. or confess things that maybe they wish they knew, you know, earlier on in life. Yeah. Oh, I love that. And then how can people find you? What's your um, website? And I'll put all of this in the show notes as well. I'm also in private practice in Austin, uh, currently take insurance, although that's slowly shifting as I get busier and busier, but I still take all the insurance plans except Medicaid and Medicare. Um, my office, uh, my website for my off for my uh, office visits is drdrshantasson.com. My other website for my book, my podcast, everything like that is um, tassonemd.com. Great. And you work via telehealth as well, right? Yep. In 15, uh, I'm licensed in 15 states um, right now. Um, and I do telehealth. I can I can do visits in other states. I just can't prescribe. And I otherwise you're practicing medicine without a license. But um, slowly expanding my reach. It's just every state is another $800 for a license. So it gets expensive. Well, thank you so much again for joining me on another episode. I'll have you back for sure. You're always such a pleasure to talk to and so knowledgeable about all things women. Well, thanks. I I, I wish I was better at my um, dating life, but that's good. Yeah. <laughs> maybe maybe you could have me on with a with a dating coach. How's that? That's a whole other podcast. You. Yeah, <laughs> well, I, I I know women, but maybe I don't know them that well. <laughs> well, thank you so much again, and it was great to see you. Thank you. Thank you for joining me. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Lifestyle changes can be hard and overwhelming to make. By building your support team of functional medicine doctors, therapists, and health coaches, you can reach your optimal health goals. Be sure to check out my other podcasts. Until we meet again, stay healthy.